Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Nice. How many of you guys have ever been hangry? Yeah, you're just so hungry, you're just irritable and angry. I have. Uh, I sneeze and I burn a thousand calories. Don't hate. Uh, my wife wanted to buy me a t-shirt that said, sorry for what I did when I was hungry, and I need to wear it pretty much daily. Uh, how many of you are sitting next to someone who gets hangry way too much? Yeah, some hands went before I even finished. Yeah, yeah. Like, you need to keep, like, a Snickers in your purse just in case. Uh, and the words are weird out. just eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it. Uh, there's a reason why we serve coffee and snacks before church. Um, I just can't deal with all the attitude. Uh, food affects mood. As glucose drops, we become less sweet in more than one way. Uh, as I wrote that sentence, my four-year-old was in the other room screaming, I want pizza strips. Can't be pizza. It's got to be pizza strips. It was way past lunchtime for him, and it was like he had Mentos and Diet Coke just running through his blood. Uh, we had to cast the hunger demon out of that baby and do it quickly. But just as food affects us physically, the same thing is true spiritually. If you are not feeding your soul, it impacts your attitude. If you are not feeding your soul, it impacts your attitude. What have you been feeding your soul these days? Uh, has it been more Facebook than it's been face-to-face -face with the one who wrote the book? Uh, has it been more Netflix than it has been with the one who you should be networking with? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Let's stand and read our theme verse together. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You may be seated. The author says that accepting Christ isn't the end. It's not, I have Jesus, period. It says, I have Jesus. Now it's time for me to grow up. God doesn't want you to just show up. He wants you to grow up. Church is not something that you just attend. It's something that you become over time. Um, this becomes even more important when we're going through a season of heartache and hardship. When you feel trapped by life circumstances, you feel trapped financially, medically, relationally, mentally. When we were growing up, if you started dating a girl, all of the objectifying guys would ask you one question, is she a 10? And because I was more sophisticated than that, I would say, all girls are a 10. Yeah. 10 was a way of saying that they're the best, uh, like the girls that you're sitting next to this morning. Job's life was literally a 10. When the author is outlining how good his life is, he uses the number 10 over and over again. In the beginning, it says he has seven sons and three daughters, which equals how many kids? 10. 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels equals 10,000. Five... Whoever said 10, you got to work on math a little bit. <laughs> 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys equals 1,000. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Job's life is literally 10 out of 10. Numerically, we're being shown that his life is the best that it can be. But that only lasts for a chapter. The book of Job is 42 chapters long. 40 of those chapters are of him trying to process his suffering and when you're in the midst of letdowns that won't let up, you feel that way. Sure, I've had a chapter or two that went well, but that doesn't compare to the 40 chapters I'm in right now. One of the words Job uses to describe his situation, what's funny to me before I get to that word, 
is when he first starts talking about his suffering, one of the first phrases he says is, let the person who curses days curse the day I was born. When I read that, I was like, was that a job? You know, is that something where like someone like you got hired to like go around cursing days? They're like, I really hate April Fool's days. You know what? You did that so well. You should be a professional cursor of days. You know, it's just such a funny statement to me. Uh, but the word that he uses over and over again to describe what his suffering is like is he uses the word trapped, imprisoned, shackled. In Job chapter 19, verse 6, it says, Know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like, like that God has imprisoned you and, and there's no warden like God? You are not getting out of it if he doesn't want you to. Job's riches couldn't st- stop life's stitches. You don't know how long it's going to be, how bad it could get, what you need to do to make it all stop. How do I graduate out of this suffering? Why you? Why now? Why? Anyone ever asked that? Last week, I told you guys about how the church prayed for me at our prayer service. Uh, I told you how I hated it because I don't like attention in that way, and I tried running the other way. But Donna insisted, and no one argues with Donna, not even me. So everyone came, and they laid their hands on me, and they, they prayed for me because of all the letdowns that won't let up over this last year, this last season. And, uh, and after everyone prayed for me, uh, the next day, I had a stomach bug yeah, so thank you for your, your intercession. Uh, you not only shared God with me, you shared your germs, which that's just love, you know? Um, they called the restroom, but there wasn't much resting for the next couple of days. Uh, I have felt trapped by life's circumstances. Uh, how many of you have ever felt that way? You just feel imprisoned. Uh, a dead-end job, loveless marriage, unhealthy mind or body. During a Warwick study, a math geek named Peter Bactus did a study titled, Why I Don't Have a Girlfriend. That's a scholarly pursuit that's just worth investing in. He tried to calculate how many suitable girlfriends there were in the UK where he lived. He wanted to rate his chances of finding true love, someone who lived near him, someone the right age range, someone who had a university degree, someone who was attractive, someone who would be attracted to him. And after he put all those calculations together, that left 26 ladies in the UK. 26 ladies that would be a match for him to fall in love with, which meant he had a 1 in 285,000 chance of bumping into one of them in a single day. He felt trapped relationally, like there was no hope. Now, the real question is, does he not have a girlfriend because he has time for these kind of calculations? Or does he have time for these calculations because he doesn't have a girlfriend? It's a chicken and egg kind of thing, you know? Job was not the first person to feel trapped. The Israelites felt the same way as Pastor Jerome pointed out. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10 through 12 says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Notice they don't say anything about God's inspiring this move. It's all about Moses. How often does that happen in our lives when something starts going wrong? We look for someone to blame. Moses, this is your fault. This is your fault that we're out here. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. 
The Israelites had been slaves for 430 years. That's twice the age of our country. Can you imagine growing up in a situation like that? You have no rights. You have no freedom. You can't go to a Bengals concert and listen to Walk Like an Egyptian if you want. You can't go to the movies and watch The Mummy, part one, two, and three. You can't go hang out at the pyramids. You have to do whatever your master wants you to do. You are used, abused, and discarded like property. You are treated like one of the common animals, and this is how it has been your entire life. Your parents and grandparents prayed for God to intervene every night, but in the morning they woke up as slaves. But today there's a knock on the door, and a friend of yours says, you're never going to believe this, but Pharaoh just gave us all permission to leave Egypt. We're free. And you being a person of faith, you being a person that believes in the miracles of God, you being one who says, yeah, we've been praying for 400 years for this to happen, this is your response. Yeah, right. There's no way that he's given us permission to leave. But when you walk out, you notice family after family lining up and heading out of the city. Could this really be happening? The day that has been dreamt about, talked about, prayed for, has it truly gone from a distant hope to a present reality? And like a fish caught in a strong current, instinctively you follow the crowd. You keep expecting someone to say, April fools, pinch you awake, but you walk out of the city completely unhindered. And you keep walking until it becomes hard to see the pyramids and the city. And suddenly you're overwhelmed with joy. Like a kid on the first day of summer vacation, everything seems brighter, everything seems new, everything seems so alive. But all that excitement is about to be challenged. You see, if you look at a map of Egypt and Canaan, and you look at the distance between Egypt and Canaan, where the Israelites are traveling to, you'll notice that there is a route directly that takes 11 days along um, the Fertile Crescent. It takes 11 days to get there. But God decides to take them a different route. If you wanted to travel from Egypt to Canaan and you looked up the directions on MapQuest, I guarantee it would not take you the route that God takes them. It leads them into what looks like a dead end, literally and figuratively. God takes them up to the Red Sea, where there is no boat waiting, no bridge. On either side of them is mountains, and behind them is an army of Egyptians. They are completely surrounded. This would be no problem for Rambo, John McClane, or Bruce Lee, but these were slaves who had never engaged in war. It's funny because Exodus 13, 18 says, the Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Isn't that funny? They, they, in their minds, feel like they're ready to take on the world. Anything that comes their way, they're ready to tackle it. But God says in verse 17, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Do you remember what it said when they saw the Egyptians coming their way? Did it say they were ready for war? No, they said, why did you bring us out here to die? It doesn't take us a whole lot to go from up here to down here. Have you ever walked out of a church service and be like, yes, God's real. He's on the throne. I got this. And then your wife or your husband says something to you in the car, and you're just like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It's so easy for us to go from this mountaintop experience to just feeling overwhelmed by the mountain that's in front of us. I believe one of the reasons why God takes them this way is that God is eliminating the possibility of running away. They feel like they have 
that there will be no choice, but they'll have to face this impossible situation and see God's ability to rescue them. God is using it as a way of stretching their faith, their courage, their hope. This will not be the last time that they face something impossible, and they will remind themselves of this story over and over and over again. If you read the book of Genesis through Malachi, you will see them stating this story over and over again to encourage them every time they faced a challenge. See, there were two men that were shipwrecked on an island, and the minute that their ship went down and they swam to shore, the first one started freaking out, and he said, we're going to die. There's no food. There's no water. Uh, we're going to die. The other one walks up to a tree, puts his back against it, starts chillaxing, says, I ain't got no problems. The guy's like, do you not realize we're in the middle of nowhere? We got no food. We got no water. We have no way to communicate with the outside world. We are going to die. And the guy says, you don't understand. I make $100,000 a week. I'm not going to die. He says, that's not going to do us any good out here. There's no Costco. There's no Sam's Club. That money means nothing to us. He says, you don't understand. I make $100,000 a week, and I give 10% to my church. My pastor will find me. (laughs) Which begs the question, should we take another offering for those of you who are traveling this summer, just in case? The first man, uh, you know, freaks out, and the other one, he's confident because he knows someone's going to come and rescue him. And, And shouldn't we be the same way? Not because Pastor Dan's coming to your rescue. That's not much much hope. But because we know that God is on the throne and that he will come to our rescue. In spite of all that God had just done on their behalf, they had no confidence that he would rescue them this time. He just rescued them from the Egyptians. 400 years of slavery, but not this time. How often do we fall into the same trap? God rescued me before, but he won't come through this time. This is different. Verse 13 Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Everyone say that. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Some of you need to make that your morning verse that you go over every day. Be still. The Lord will fight for you. Psychologists refer to the fight-or-flight syndrome, that whenever you're backed into a corner, you will instinctively choose one of those two options. I saw a video this week of a man pulling up alongside of a woman who was jogging, and he tried to kidnap her, to which she instinctively responded by whooping his butt, punching him, kicking him. You see him cowardly running into his vehicle and driving off all crazy. Sometimes you need to fight, but there is a third option. Fight, flight, faith. Sometimes the fight is so big, you need God to fight for you. Sometimes we need God to fight on our behalf. A pastor asked his church to pray that God would shut down the neighborhood bar. True story. A few weeks later, lightning struck the bar and it burnt it to the ground. Having heard about the church's prayers, the bar owner sued the church. During the court case, the bar owner passionately argued that God struck his bar with lightning because of the church's prayers, and he wanted compensation. The pastor backtracked and said they didn't really expect anything to happen. The judge laughed. Here we have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and a pastor who does not. Have we ever been guilty of the same thing? We're praying, but it's basically like wishing upon a star or wishing before we blow out the candles. 
It's not real confidence. It's not real faith. This last week, my family got a bill for 800. Do you guys like surprise bills? Yeah. We got like one of those surprise bills for $800. And my initial reaction as, as a pastor, as a man of the cloth, as a man of faith was panic. Because I'm looking at the account and I'm like, we don't have any room for surprise bills, babe. We got enough room for, I was going to say prize bills, but they're not prizes. There's no such thing as a prize bill. But there's no room for surprise bills. Well, come to find out, we looked into it and they actually owed us 400 how often do we freak out and God's like, I've already taken care of it. You know, I've already fought on your behalf. You just need to be still and wait. Be still and know that I am God. Titus 1.16 says, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Now, having God on your side is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not an excuse to act foolish and then expect God to come to the rescue. Just live however you want and just 911, God, hey, you know where I'm at. Some of us are praying for a miracle when we should be praying for wisdom. I'm going to say that again. Some of us are praying for a miracle when we should be praying for wisdom. We are delegating to God what he has already delegated to us. We're praying for more money when what we need is a better spending habit. Those 15 credit cards... That wasn't God's idea. We are praying for better health when what we need is better choices. God's not going to bless McDonald's no matter how hard you pray for it. And the Diet Coke's not helping either. We are praying for a calmer toddler when what we need is to stop letting YouTube raise our child. We need wisdom. The traps we are feeling sometimes are self-inflicted. So while sometimes we need an outside-the-box miracle, at other times we need an inside-the-box creativity. God has already given us all the pieces we need. We just need the wisdom to put them together properly. Now, some of us don't realize how desperately we need wisdom. We don't realize just how bad our situation really is. We're like the guy who jumped off a 50-story building, and halfway down, somebody yelled out, How are you doing? To which he said, So far, so good. Sometimes we think we're doing fine, but we deceive ourselves that we're fine because we haven't hit bottom yet. Some of us don't realize just how desperately we need God, how desperately we need wisdom to trust him to fight for us and with us as he promised. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side. With love and strength for each new day, he will make a way. God will make a way. Does anybody need that? Need God to make a way where you just can't see how I'm possibly going to get out of this? I know, God, you've done it in the past, but this time is different. It's during these seasons that we need to be feeding our souls most. It's so easy for us to drift away from God during seasons like this, to feel jaded and to feel like God somehow has betrayed us when these are the times that we need to be leaning in. It's one of the things I love about the book of Job is you read it and there's this raw honesty of God. Why did you do this to me? Why is this happening? But one thing you don't see Job doing is Job will complain to God. Job does not complain about God. I'm going to say that again. Job will complain to God, but he doesn't complain about God because he knows that the only one who can fix this situation is God. And so he leans into him. So right now, 
If that's a season you're in, lean into God. Stop running away. Stop leaning the other direction. Lean into God and allow him to give you what you need daily. 